Amen. Thank you so much, guys. If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to take a little break from the book of Proverbs this morning. And uh, I'm going to explain why. I want to explain why this morning by giving you just a little bit of a history lesson to kind of set the stage for where we're going to be going with this morning's message. In the uh, 1700s in Europe, there began to be a growing movement called, that we've since coined, the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was predicated on humanity's belief that human rationality and reason were the answers to the problems of society. There became this, within the culture, especially in Europe, an elevation of our ability to solve the problems that we're facing in this life. And this was not without some reason, because during this time, we were making incredible advances in the area of science. We were making incredible advances in our understanding of the natural world, our understanding of how medicine works and how our bodies work. There was an incredible advance in those types of areas. But the church became confronted with an important challenge. And that was that especially in places like Germany, German intellectuals and the population as a whole began to reject and be skeptical of anything miraculous or divine. They, they began to be skeptical, for example, of miracles that the Bible talks about. They even began to be skeptical of the idea of God altogether. And so sadly, what the church did in Europe to adapt to these challenges that the Enlightenment was presenting was to abandon their belief in the miraculous and divine. And the key way we saw this shift happen in Europe was they began to say things like this. Well, the Bible is not really a record of of revelation. Instead, we should understand that the Bible is a record of people's experience with God. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John aren't writing things that are authoritative for me and you today, according to the church in Europe. They're just recording to us what they experienced, what happened to them. And so the value for the Bible for these churches in Europe at the time was simply that it was a record of people's good experiences with God that we could learn from at some level. The problem became that subsequent generations of people began to reject in the church the Bible's teaching on a number of things. In fact, the state of the church in Europe today, which is dying or dead in most places, is in large part because during the season of the Enlightenment, they abandoned their belief in the miraculous and as a result, biblical authority. This view of the Bible did not stay isolated in Europe. It actually began to make inroads in our country, in America. One by one, the mainline Protestant denominations began to believe this kind of thinking. Mainline uh, mainline Presbyterians, Lutherans, and Episcopals all began to headlong uh, jump into this way of thinking. Most of those mainline denominations, I might add, similar to Europe, are either dead or dying because of that. In most of those places, there were conservative theological people that said, no, we don't believe that. We're going to break away and form a separate kind of conservative theologically denomination. But in one family of churches, there was a different outcome. 
In the Southern Baptist Convention, we too, as our family of churches, faced this challenge that the Enlightenment put forward. It got so bad at one point in our family of churches that there were even people teaching in our schools and our seminaries that denied the virgin birth, that denied the historical reliability of the resurrection, that even denied the inerrancy and the authority of the Bible. But different than every other movement that I'm aware of in the history of Christianity, in the Southern Baptist world, there was a movement to turn back to conservative biblical theologically conservative positions. And so over almost a 20-year period from 1979 all the way to the year 2000, there was, as it's been termed, a people's rebellion in our family of churches that elected conservative leadership that in turn began to populate our seminaries and as a result, our training of our pastors with conservative theologically positions. One of the primary mechanisms that was used to do this, to see this kind of people's rebellion become a reality, was the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention where all of the churches and their leadership get together once a year. Part of the strategy for this was that the conservative leadership began to use a two-day pastor's conference before the business meeting to lay out these teachings and these ideas and these thoughts about what the Bible had to say about these issues. And so over almost 20 years, through the pastor's conference of the SBC, there was a renewed emphasis on biblical authority, biblical inerrancy, the belief in the things that are miraculous in the Bible, that they're actually historically true, not just made up stories. Now, why do I tell you all that? I tell you all that because next week in Phoenix, Arizona, I have been asked to preach at the pastor's conference of the Southern Baptist Convention. So I will be out of town next week, but I told you that because on the one hand, I want you to know I feel the weight of that responsibility, uh, and I'm going to be sharing the message this morning that I'll be sharing next week at the pastor's conference with you today. Part of that's because I don't want you to have to tune in and watch it online if you're working or doing something. It'll be 3.30 there, 2.30 here on Monday next week. But I I also want to have the opportunity to practice, uh, if that's okay. Uh, they've selected 12 speakers from across our country that aren't at mega churches. They've selected more average-sized churches like our own, and they've asked all 12 of us to preach through the book of Philippians. So on Sunday, we'll start in Philippians 1.1, and by Monday night, we'll finish the entire book. Now, can you guess what passage I've been assigned to preach? Philippians 3.12-16. So it's my privilege and my pleasure this morning to jump into the book of Philippians with you and to share. Uh, People in the first service felt very empowered to give me feedback on my message. (laughs) If you feel so inclined, you're welcome to do that as well. But with all that preliminary said, would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Philippians 3, 12 through 16, we read these words. Paul says, Not that I have already reached the goal, or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it, because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do... Forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you please pray with me, church? Father God, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word, that your word speaks clearly and powerfully to us. We pray this morning, in Jesus' name, that you would remove distraction. And God, we pray that you would help us not only hear your word, but you would help us do your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Paul starts by addressing a danger of misunderstanding the grace of God. In verse 12, in the first part, we read these words. Paul says, Not that I have already reached the goal, or am already perfect. You see, just previously, Paul has talked about the resurrection of the dead, the final glorification that's coming for those of us that know Jesus. That one day upon our death, or Christ's return, he will call us into his presence and perfect us, glorify us. And Paul says he wants you and I to know that he, and by extension you and I, have not yet reached this goal or yet been perfected. What Paul is emphasizing is that while Christ's work on the cross is finished, our work is not done. Just because Christ is finished in his death, burial, and resurrection for our sins does not mean that the Christian life is one of passivity and ease. Another way of saying what he's saying is this. Conversion, coming to Christ, is not the finish line. Conversion, in many ways, is the starting line. Several years back, there was an Italian motorcycle racer who was on the circuit very competitive race that he was in at the time. And as the race was going on, this racer was winning most of the race. He led through most of the competition. But somewhere along the way, he lost track of what lap he was on. And so as as he was making one of the final turns towards the finish line, Ricardo Russo, this racer, looked over his shoulder to notice that the closest racer was three bike lengths away from him. And as he crossed the finish line, the video footage records Ricardo Russo lifting his hand, celebrating victory. In fact, he went so far as to lift both of his hands, standing on his motorcycle, declaring victory over what he's won. But the problem was, about the time Ricardo Russo stood up and declared victory, he noticed something out of the corner of his eye. He noticed that the cyclists behind him were not slowing down. They were speeding up. You see, Ricardo Russo had one more lap to go in the race when he thought it was over. My fear for many of us as Christians is that we can misunderstand that when we become Christians, when we become followers of Jesus, That we in some way think that life is over, that the victory that we've won has secured our place in heaven, so we're somehow finished. And while it's true that Christ's work is finished, that our standing before God is one of forgiven and justified, 
Paul is making it clear that it actually isn't the end of the race for us in this life. It's actually the start of the race. Paul goes on to clarify this truth about grace in the rest of verse 12. Look back at your Bibles. He says, I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. The key word that you should focus on in these verses is the word taken hold of or obtained. That word means to grasp or to lay hold of something, to win something. And Paul says that for those of us that know Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, Jesus, look at the end of verse 12, has taken hold of us. You see, despite our sin, despite our disobedience, despite our lying, our stealing, and disobeying our parents, despite the lust and hatred we have in our hearts, despite the fact that every one of us are deserving of God's wrath and judgment, God decides to pour that out on his son Jesus. Jesus Christ takes our place. And when Jesus Christ dies on that cross and rises again, he makes it possible for you and I to be forgiven. When we turn from our sin and place our faith in Christ, it's as if Jesus is claiming us. He's making us his own. As I read this this past week, the, the, the image I got in my mind was of an athlete claiming a trophy. I grew up watching one guy named Michael Jordan play basketball. Michael Jordan famously won six NBA championships. And there are these iconic moments when Michael Jordan would be in the locker room after winning this championship where he would hold that trophy and he would bring it close and he would hug it. He would even at sometimes kiss the trophy, right? This passage of scripture is describing Jesus doing that to us. When we come to faith in Christ, he pulls us in close as a trophy of his grace to say, you're mine. You're my child, and I'm never letting you go. Paul says what Jesus has done for us has accomplished an incredible victory. But what he also says is because of that victory, look back at the middle phrase in verse 12, because Jesus has taken hold of us, look at what he says, I make every effort to take hold of Jesus. That phrase, every effort, to means to run after something as if in hot pursuit. To vigorously run with exertion after something. I don't know how many of you are aware of where the idea of the marathon came from, but I think that helps us understand this passage. A marathon, if you run a marathon, it's 26.2 miles. You can't forget the .2 part, okay? 26.2, my sweet wife here in the front row, has run a marathon. The legend and the background of the marathon is that in ancient times, the Greeks were fighting a famous battle against the Persians, and they won a decisive battle at Marathon, and they sent a messenger from Marathon all the way back to Athens to report on what had happened in this great battle as the Greeks had been victorious. But in this messenger's running to, to tell his superiors what had happened, he ran considerable distance, some 26 miles. And after telling them 
of the Greek victory over the Persians, the legend says that he fell over dead because he had exerted himself to that point. By the way, it's a warning to any of you considering running a marathon, right? Be careful. But it also illustrates for us an urgency that we're called to as well. We're called to that kind of urgent running where he's running with all of his might to communicate to his superiors what's happened. We're running with that same kind of urgency after Jesus. So here's the point. On the one hand, Paul's emphasizing what's already happened to us, the victory we have in Jesus. On the other hand, he's also emphasizing what's not yet happened to us, the call to urgently pursue Jesus. When you put these two ideas together, here's the statement that I want you to take home this morning. You and I are called to a victory in Christ that produces an urgency for Christ. You and I, as followers of Jesus, are called to find a security and victory in what Jesus has done for us that leads us to urgently pursue Jesus with all of our might. Now, this is challenging for us because this victory that we have been given in Jesus typically doesn't lead to urgency if we're not careful, victory and security actually lead to complacency and passivity. In fact, if you look at the history of the church, if you look over 2,000 years of church history, when the church faces persecution... For example, in the early church, when the Christians were killed in the Colosseum, when they were martyred for their faith, the church grew exponentially. But when governing authorities began to be apathetic towards the church, or when the church was allowed to just coexist alongside the state, the church began to drift and to struggle. We actually see this in modern day times as well. There's actually a a growing debate about professional basketball teams resting some of their best players after they've secured a spot in the playoffs. So it's actually not uncommon today if an NBA team secures their spot, in other words, if they win enough games to be ahead of the next person behind them, they'll begin to rest some of their best players. So it's not uncommon if you were to buy a ticket late in the season to go see your favorite NBA team play to get to the stadium only to see your favorite player wearing a suit and tie and sitting on the bench. You pull out your phone, you begin to research what's going on. Does this player have an injury? Is there something wrong with him? And what you discover is he's fine. The complacency and victory that the team has already won has led them to begin to rest their players. Now, here's the point for you and for me. If we're not careful, we can drift in the same kind of trap. We can think that the victory Jesus has won for us should lead us to rest some of our best players as we take the field of life. When the reality is what this passage is saying is that the victory Jesus has won for us shouldn't lead us to rest our best players. It should lead to an urgency with which we're playing every day as if it's our last. The victory Jesus has won for us should lead to an urgency in our lives. I want to to show you this morning what this kind of victorious urgency looks like.
through three pictures or three elements that this passage gives us. What does it look like to leave everything on the field in this kind of victoriously urgent way? Number one, number one, Paul talks about a victorious urgency lived through connecting to God's empowerment. We live out victorious urgency through connecting to the power God supplies us. Notice verses 13 and 14. And as I read these verses, notice especially in verse 14 how Paul talks about the means or the fuel by which we pursue Jesus. Look at these verses and notice this together with me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do... Forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. This one thing is I pursue as my goal the prize promised. Now notice this. By God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Paul reminds us he's not already obtained it yet, but he's doing one thing. He's in hot pursuit. He's running like that one from Marathon to Athens after Jesus. But here he develops, he says, the the way I'm doing this is by God's heavenly call in Jesus. See, what Paul is emphasizing is that God doesn't just save us. God instills in us a power to propel us. God's empowerment doesn't stop after you become a Christian. The reality is it just begins to start. When he talks about this heavenly call, He's talking about the fact that God initiates by His Spirit salvation in our lives and that God continues to perpetuate that. But that interesting phrase at the end gives us some insight into how this happens. He says this heavenly call, this power from God, is in Christ Jesus. So here's what that means. When you become a Christian, when you turn from your sin and trust Jesus alone, you are connected to Jesus by faith in such a way that on the one hand, you're declared innocent of your crimes. In God's court, you are declared innocent and forgiven. But this connection also gives you an experiential connection to Jesus by which he gives you power to live the life he's called you to live. Said another way, Jesus is not just the finish line, Jesus is also the fuel we need to cross the finish line. Jesus is not only the destination, he's the means and the power by which we have to have to meet that destination, to cross that finish line. You see, what Paul's saying is the mistake that we could make about this victorious urgency is to assume that we do it in our power or that we do it in our strength. The reality is the victorious urgency God calls us to is not one that comes from our power or our ability. It's one that comes from God's. Said this way, very simply, victorious urgency connects to the empowerment we find in Jesus. Victorious urgency comes when we connect to the source of power that we have in Jesus. So what this means is that we are humbly declaring together that we, though are called to run this race, desperately need Jesus Christ. 
One of the ways I think about this when I think about this call to tap into God's power is I think about these racing sailboat teams that race on television. I don't know if you've ever tuned in to one of these races. They're pretty entertaining. There are several teams of people that are on a boat that has no power, no no mechanization of any kind. It's completely powered by the wind. And when you watch these boats, what you'll find is the people on them are not passive or complacent at all. They're very busy. Every time I turn on the TV and watch one of these teams, there's always some person cranking something. I don't know what they're doing or why they're doing it, but they're turning something. There's some other guy or gal with ropes pulling them in a certain direction, perilously leaning over the water. There's some other person frantically moving the steering wheel in several directions. And then there's a host and myriad of other people just constantly moving around. Now, what are they doing? They're very active in what they're doing, but their movement is around the source of power that they're tapping into to move that boat. It would be odd, however, on the other hand, if I tuned into the television to watch one of these racing teams and I saw eight people lined up in front of the sail doing this. (gasps) 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 Sorry if I spit on you in the front row there. It would be odd, right? Because what would they be doing? They would try to be moving that sail, not with the power that's meant to move that ship. They would try to be moving that sail in a strength that comes from within them. Rather, what they're trying to do is not find a strength that comes from within them to move that ship. They're tapping into a strength that comes from without them, comes from outside them. In the same way, you and I are called to a victorious urgency that connects to the empowerment Jesus provides. So let me ask you a question. Does your life display a victorious urgency that humbly connects to God's power? Does your life display a humility that says, God, I need you. Let me tell you one of the simple ways you can know that in your life. Your prayer life is one of the primary ways you connect to and tap into God's power that he's unleashed in your life. I would say specifically, your prayer life over the word of God is where you and I really connect and tap into this power. Here's what I want you to know. If we are living prayerless lives, many of us every day are trying to live our lives like this. (gasps) We're trying to move the ship of our lives in our own ability and power. You know what the reality is? Not only does trying to blow on the sails of your life not work, it's very discouraging and frustrating. You and I are called to live a victoriously urgent life that says, God, we desperately need your power. Number two, victorious urgency also looks like embracing our role. Embracing our role. Look at verse 13 and listen to how Paul describes what it looks like to pursue Christ as our goal. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, notice these two phrases, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. These are participles that help explain what it means to pursue Jesus. 
it looks like forgetting what's behind me and leaning forward, reaching forward to Jesus. Said another way, it's forgetting my past success or failure and leaning forward and pressing into Jesus. If there's anybody that understood this, it was the Apostle Paul. Because if you skip up to chapter 3 in the first part of the verses, Paul lists for us what's behind him. He tells us that he was, verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. It says regarding the law, Paul was a Pharisee. Verse 6, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, and regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. That's what was behind Paul. But notice what he says in verse 7. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Jesus Christ. When Paul says we're to forget what lies behind us and reach forward to what lies ahead of us, he's saying we're to have this kind of attitude that says everything is lost to me compared to Jesus Christ. What this is saying for you and for me is that you and I, have an indispensable role in following Jesus. The role that you and I are called to play is essential to our growth as followers of Christ. Victorious urgency, this means, is victoriously urgent people embrace the role they have in following Jesus. Think of it like a race. When you become a Christian, you become a Christian based on Christ Jesus and his death and resurrection alone. You bring nothing to the table. You bring nothing of value. God didn't save you because you're cute and cuddly and good looking. He saves you totally based on his grace and mercy alone. But think of it this way. Once God saves you, it's like God's salvation is putting you at the starting line. You didn't do anything to get there. You didn't have any merit that brought you to a place of being worthy of getting that starting line. God, by his grace, puts you there and there alone. But once God puts you there, and once that gun sounds, we are called to run the race that has been set before us. We're called to run the path that God has given us. Pressing this analogy just a bit further, think of it like a relay race. God has handed us a baton that we're then to take and run for his glory. I don't know if you remember this past year, 2016, our American women relay team dropped the baton. Have you ever heard a baton drop? It's deafening in one of those races because everybody sees what's happened. Tragically, what happened in this moment was as one of our American gals was leaning forward to pass the baton to the next person, there was a runner in the next lane that inadvertently knocked her back. So just as she was leaning forward, this other runner was starting and knocked her back. And as she knocked her back, you could see her face grimace and slow-mo. And the baton hits the ground. Here's my fear for you and for me. My fear is that some of us are letting the baton hit the ground because we don't realize we're called to run this race. The race that you and I are called to run means we're called to run a race and embrace our role 
in two directions. On the one hand, we're called to run a race in our relationship with God, in our vertical standing with Him. We're called to find our identity in Jesus. That our worth and our value and our peace and purpose rest in Christ and in Christ alone. It doesn't come from my paycheck. It doesn't come from the size of my house. My worth and value come from Jesus and Jesus alone. And as I express that in my vertical relationship with God, I'm putting sin to death and I'm cultivating holiness and righteousness. On the other hand, I'm also called in my horizontal relationships with other people to invest in them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm called to a task to get the gospel to the darkest places in the world. Church, we're called to embrace our role to make disciples of all nations. That is a role Jesus has given us And it's one, if we're not careful, we can miss the baton that's been handed to us that we're then to take to generations around the world. We're called to multiply not just globally, we're also called to multiply generationally. We're called to see the faith being passed on to our children's children, children. That's why what we witness today in these baptismal waters is so sweet, because we're seeing a father pass his faith on to his son. We're called to embrace our role, always remembering that it's by God's power, but it is nevertheless our role to run the race set before us. So let me ask you, is there a victorious urgency in your life that embraces your role as you follow Jesus? Is there a victorious urgency in your life with sin, where you see the danger of sin in your life, where you're careful about what positions you put yourself in, where you're careful, for example, about what you let your eyes see because you know that your weakness with sin is there? Is there a victorious urgency in your life to see the people in your life that do not know Jesus hear the gospel? Is there a victorious urgency that says, I want to see unreached people groups become intolerable to me. I want peoples all over the world to know that Jesus died for them and that he rose again. Is there that kind of urgency in our lives to make this Christ known? It's at this point I do want to say that this victorious urgency is not birthed out of merit. We're not trying to perform for God. We're not doing these things to try to earn God's favor. We're doing these things because of the victory that we've been given. It's not a worrisome urgency. It's not a performing urgency. It's a victorious urgency. We're called to do these things not to earn God's favor. We're called to do these things because we have it. Remember, God is opposed to earning but he, for the Christians in this room, is not opposed to effort. Number three, and finally, we are called to a victorious urgency that surrenders to God's conviction. Verses 15 and 16 have two commands. I want you to notice these two commands, but nestled between these two commands is a sweet promise I want you to see. Look at verse 15. 
Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Did you see the two commands? Verse 15, think this way. Shift your thinking to be victoriously urgent about grace. Verse 16, live this way. Let your life reflect this kind of urgency as you walk this earth. But between these two commands, he promises us something. He says, if you think differently, if you get off track, God will reveal this to you. What he's telling us is that there's a good chance that in running the race that you and I have set before us, we will get off course. He's telling us that at some point in this race that God set before us, we will lose our way and get distracted. But what he promises us is that God, through his convicting work, through the Holy Spirit, will help us course correct. What encourages me about this passage is what Paul is ultimately saying is while we're called to run this race in God's power, we are never to forget that we cannot change ourselves. You see, victorious urgency doesn't pridefully declare our independence from God. Victorious urgency confesses our inability to change ourselves. We need God's convicting work in our lives. You know, there was a day when we did not have GPS and phone. I don't know about you, but I would find it hard to get around without my phone these days. Anybody with me on that? I think I would be lost about 99% of the time if I didn't have my phone. But would you believe it or not, there was a day when sailors navigated the waters of this world without any of that stuff. In fact, sailors navigated the waters of this world using just the stars in the sky. And it was not uncommon for sailors during those days when they would get disoriented or a storm would throw them off course for them to look up into the night sky and find what? The North Star. And once they could find that North Star, it could orient them to where they really were. They could quickly figure out which direction they needed to go to get back on course. What I want you to know is God has given us a north star to help us course correct in our journey through life. The north star that God has given us is his word and his spirit. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God to show us the direction we should go. The Holy Spirit using the Word of God, it's like hooking our hearts up to a machine that shows us things that we can't really see. That's why Paul, notice back in your Bibles, said if you think differently about anything, notice verse 15, the word he uses, God will reveal this also to you. That word reveal means to uncover something that's hidden or unseen. Paul says, victorious urgency confesses our desperate need for God to give us these course corrections and this guidance. So let me ask you, in your life, is there a victorious urgency that confesses your inability to change yourself? 
This is really important because everything culturally we are told is that the answer to our problems is within us. You are constantly told from Disney movies you watch to commercials that pass through your eyes that within you, if you follow your heart, if you look deep enough inside you, you find the answers to all of life's problems. I want you to know that the Greek word for that is baloney. It's not true. The answers are not within you. The answers come from God's Holy Spirit and His Word. Yes, the Spirit of God lives within you, but the way that you connect that Spirit to that North Star is when you read God's Word. There's a powerful effect when the Holy Spirit uses the Word. It becomes a vocabulary by which He speaks to our hearts. You and I are called to a victorious urgency that confesses, God, we need your convicting work in our lives. In 1793, in England, there was a society formed called the Baptist Missionary Society. To our knowledge, it was the first missions organization ever formed in the modern world. One of the key men that was instrumental in the formation of this society was a man named William Carey. William Carey was living in a difficult time in England in which they really had abandoned the call to take the gospel to the world. In fact, in one particular meeting, William Carey was pressing his fellow pastors for the need to start some kind of missions organization to send missionaries to faraway places. And one of the older pastors looked at the young William Carey at the time and said, and I quote, Sit down, young man. If God wants to save the heathen, he will do so without your help. They were living in a time where they were emphasizing the victory and the sovereignty of God to the exclusion of the command to go. Kerry went on, though. He was undeterred. And he began to preach and teach about the need to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And in one particular message from the book of Isaiah... Carrie famously declared, we must expect great things from God and we must attempt great things for God. You see, the expecting great things from God is the call to victoriously rest in the security I have in Jesus. I'm expecting Jesus to keep every one of his promises to me. They're never going to fail. But that expectation doesn't lead to complacency or passivity. It leads me to attempt, urgently attempt, great things for God. Carrie, a few years later, left for India and spent 41 years of his life serving our Lord and Savior Jesus in the nation of India making the gospel known to those peoples. He died serving the Lord in a faraway land. You and I have been called to the same victorious urgency that says we we are to expect great things from God, but we are to attempt great things for God. Would you please pray with me, church? Father, we thank you.